Uh, so I, uh, I, second talk in the series of three I've been given and I've called this one No Fear we've been looking at um, uh, the part of Isaiah from chapter 40 through to about 45 uh, last week we uh, did chapter 40 alone today I'll look at 41 and a bit of 42 and next week I'm going to be a slightly more, more uh, generous looking at I call it next week's talk by the way the arrogant humble God the arrogant humble God tonight today's talk I call simply no fear uh, listen to uh, English New Testament scholar uh, Bishop N.T. Wright in his book following Jesus quote do you know what the most frequent command in the Bible turns out to be what instruction what order is given again and again by God by angels by Jesus by prophets and apostles what do you think be good be holy for I am holy or negatively don't sin don't be immoral no the most frequent command of the Bible is don't be afraid don't be afraid fear not don't be afraid well whether Tom's right or not uh, he's onto something it is such a powerful thing whether it's the most most I don't know but he's right and it's a command we're going to hear today it's a hard command to obey by the way yeah, don't be afraid oh gee you know thanks uh, it's like that don't panic when something's really wrong it, it's sometimes quite unhelpful in a way so you need more than just saying don't be afraid because it's hard to give up fear even when we want to fear comes in many kinds there's not just the being scared type when something really is scary happening that's uh, terror but the other kinds unrecognised and sometimes unadmitted there's a psychologist Dorothy Rowe who wrote a book some years ago called Beyond Fear um, she said this fear like death is the great unmentionable we maintain a conspiracy of silence so as pretend, pretend we're not afraid and often I think we can live not I mean fear is not a bad thing in itself if they think to be afraid of we should be afraid of them but there can be a sense in which fear can play a more significant role in our lives than we know and can be left behind bright denial or self abuse drugs and sometimes it, it exists in places where you think it ought not to I mean what if you were one of the richest most famous most beautiful and most loved and admired person in the world what if you could get there you're the most beautiful, richest, most loved and admired person in the world surely you might say should be right well no, I quote for all the glamour, the applause Diana remained throughout a very insecure person at heart almost childlike in her desire to do good for others so she could release herself from the deep feelings of unworthiness of which her eating habits, disorders rather, were merely a symptom. That was Earl Spencer speaking at the funeral of his sister, the late Princess of Wales. Well, who is safe, you might say? We turn to Isaiah chapter 41. What do we hear? Verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. Verse 10. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I'll uphold you with my victorious right hand 
Verse 13 For I the Lord your God hold your right hand It is I who say to you Do not fear I will help you Verse 14 Do not fear you worm Jacob you insect Israel I will help you says the Lord Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel On your notes which may help you with me move through this material we start with the Cyrus crisis and the responses this text like almost all texts in scripture is written first in a particular time in a particular situation and these words are written into a situation of tremendous turmoil and chaos in the Middle East about the 5th century before Christ empires are shaking new forces are emerging and one of the most significant is one Cyrus of Persia that's modern day Iran who was one of the greatest conquerors in world history Interesting, it's a sign of our bias we don't, we don't often think about it. We think of the Western, Alexander and then others. But Cyrus was one of the greatest conquerors in world history. I'll give you his history. He inherited the throne of his, fa- uh, his father in Persia in 559 BC. In 556, the Babylonian king called Nabonidus, motivated by a dream which is not a good reason to do political and uh, uh, diplomatic movements and when he by a great, abandoned the treaty he'd made with the Medes over half a century and made a treaty with Cyrus this gave Cyrus the freedom to move against the Medes whom he conquered the new Medo-Persian Empire was formed with control over the entirety of Iran 546 he defeated the Anatolian Kingdom of Lydia and Ionia that's modern day Turkey then it was Greek for the next five years he consolidated his control over the tribes of northeast Iran. All this success paved the way for his crowning achievement, the conquest of Babylon in 539. The whole of the Near East except for Egypt was under the control of the Persians, under Cyrus, though he himself was then killed in battle in 530. You know the picture, he's in other words come right down Turkey, or today the modern day Turkey, Palestine, Israel, Syria, Iran, Iraq, that whole area, Jordan, under this fierce new king. Well, we go back to as he emerges for 10 years, this great fearful force is emerging, threatening the old empire. Look at verse 2 of chapter 41. He, he delivers nations up to him and tramples kings underfoot he makes them like dust with his sword like driven stubble with his bow that's that's the rise of this great conqueror Cyrus the question that uh, the prophet Isaiah asks is not about Cyrus but who is behind Cyrus Who enabled him to have this power? Was it a sign of, was it the gods of the Persians? Was it brilliant strategy? Was it just socio-economic forces? 
What is the driving force, really? Who, who is behind this great conquering king, uh, creating terror and fear throughout the area? Listen to how it begins. This is the very beginning of chapter 41. Listen to me, O, o coastlands. Coastland, by the way, is often used not just to mean literally coastland, but kind of the, the sort of countries round about on the edge. Listen to me, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us draw to near for judgment. That is, let's sit down. We're going to have a kind of court case together, have a discussion together. Here's the question, verse 2. Who has roused a victor from the east? Summoned him to his service. He delivers nations up to him and tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safety, scarcely touching the path with his feet. Who has performed and done all this? Calling generations from the beginning. Who? Verse 4 tells you who. I... The Lord am first and will be with the last. The astounding feature here in this section of Isaiah, not entirely new if you read Isaiah before, he talked earlier about taking the king of Assyria as his axe and, uh, and using the terrible Assyrians for his purposes. But here the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of the, of the world, is saying, I'm the one behind the Cyrus crisis. Actually, it gets worse if you were to jump to chapter 45 of Isaiah. Put a finger in, just come back a bit. You'll find there um, an astounding statement. God speaks here, as it were, to this great Persian. Don't forget, Cyrus is not an Israelite. He doesn't know the true God. He's, he's just out there. But listen to how God describes him in Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. You know what the Hebrew of the word anointed is? Mashiach. Angazite Messiah. It, it is used in the scriptures of the king of Israel, the anointed one, David and his successors. It's used of, of a promised one who will come as a great king. But now it's being used of Cyrus. That's a shock, isn't it? I think that God could be using that side. But there it is. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and strip the kings of their robes to open doors before him, and the gates shall not be closed. Here's God saying to Cyrus, I'll go before you to level the mountains, to break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the, arc, the bars of iron. I'll give you the treasures of darkness, the riches hidden in secret places, so that you may know that it's I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call your name. I surname you, though you do not know me. That last sentence there isn't reminded to us of what's going on. Remember I mentioned last week, God's people Israel are not happy they have been decimated by the terrible Babylonians. A great section of their community has been carted off and resettled. Their, 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 their temple of God is in ruins. The people are languishing in exile. In chapter 40 we heard that God promises comfort my people for your punishment is over. But here in chapter 40, 
one would get an idea of how God may be going to do it surprisingly by his anointed king no no not, not David or another David no. this, this Gentile, this pagan Cyrus whom God is calling and the Cyrus crisis as he moves forth terrorises the nations we have what I call the coastline do-it-yourself anti-fear machine what's there? what, what do they do? well crisis and fear verse 5 the coastlands have seen and are afraid the ends of the earth tremble this is back to chapter 41 they have drawn near and come each helps the other saying take courage and here's what they do if you doubt build more gods the artisan encourages the blacksmith the goldsmith rather the one who smooths with with, with the hammer encourages the one who strikes with the anvil says that the soldering is good as they fasten it with nails so it cannot be moved um, this may not be obvious to you immediately but there are other places that is the description Isaiah mocks and scorns those to build a statue of a God and make sure that it doesn't topple over uh, because that's a real downer uh, when, 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 when your God falls over um, uh, as I said last week uh, Isaiah or rather the God who speaks for Isaiah would not do well in contemporary uh, religious studies courses so he's far too arrogant and uh, one-sided for that now we'll talk about God's arrogant next week actually it's actually a very interesting issue and quite surprising well that's what they're doing they're making a statue to put up fear can I say if I may jump uh, this is not very rarely done but some people do get quite superstitious about things but there is a truth in which humankind faced with fear does create uh, a kind of world of their own uh, a kind of way to keep the world safe a kind of social construction of reality as uh, sociologist Berger once put it a kind of world you make to ward off to keep the world safe um, so that you don't have to face what, what, what you're fearing and, and it's what the nations are doing but to his own people Israel is chosen there is a different word they're also terrified but they don't need to be terrified listen to how he describes verse 8 but you Israel my servant Jacob whom I have chosen the offspring of Abraham my friend I mentioned to you last week didn't I that the way that Hebrew poetry goes uh, is very simple it's uh, a statement A and what's more you might have that a plus tends to be that you say something then you say it again often in a more precise or more moving way and here you see it Israel my servant next line Jacob whom I have chosen they're not two separate things Jacob and Israel are the name for the one ancient patriarch uh, it's just making it more personal personal. Israel my servant Jacob whom I have chosen so you often find this kind of parallel if you don't know what's going on you think hang on well which one is it you know, it's, but no it's, it's the same and uh, the offspring of Abraham my friend again let's just focus not upon the structure but the meaning here my servant my chosen the, the, those from Abraham my friend speaking of the great patriarch the great person whom God had chosen and told he'd be a blessing to all the nations and here they are his offspring verse 9 you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called you from its farthest corners saying to you, you are my servant I have chosen you 
and not cast you off he's here speaking of how he brought them to himself out of slavery in Egypt how he called their ancestors from the very land now we're talking about from Iraq and Iran uh, where Abraham was called to this land he is, he's taken the initiative it's not, not that they've chosen him he's chosen and dealt with them patiently and lovingly and therefore comes the reassurance in verse 9 do not fear for I am with you do not be afraid for I am your God I will strengthen you, I will help you I will uphold you in my victorious right hand but there are those who are opposed verse 11 those who are incensed against you that they'll be ashamed and disgraced those who strive against you the Lord says they'll be as nothing and perish you shall seek those who contend against you and you can't find them they shall be nothing at all why? verse 13 for I the Lord your God hold your right hand it is I who say to you do not fear I will help you so it's a, it's a, this is a lovely passage actually and what comes next even more here is the living God speaking to his broken and defeated and scared witless people in the midst of great upheaval and his word is like the word comfort my people he says don't be afraid why? because I am with you that you're God I'm bound to you, I've called you uh, I, you're my servants and it, 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 in fact you can pick up in, the, in, the, in I'm now at the point D um, is, I don't know what to make of this language is, is God kind of mocking their view of themselves remember we said last week they're saying their right is neglected God doesn't see we're nothing and here God is almost turning on their heads their self-designation do not fear you worm Jacob you insect Israel maybe they thought I'm just a worm I'm nothing so God you can call this talk by the way God holds hands with a worm <laughs> I will hold you by the victorious right hand you worm although there's some problems there well, I suppose God could overcome them somehow um, but not, it's not literal it's, but it, you, you catch the feeling of it I will help you your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel that's a key phrase in verse 14 of chapter 41 Redeemer is a phrase that has resonance um, in the ancient world of Israel of the person in your family who is obligated to look after you the person who will go bail for you and so forth that kind of it's not just a general phrase it's, it's, it's the kind of a person who's committed to your welfare and the great news is that your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel and when the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer your Goel in the Hebrew then you don't have to be afraid you may be a worm you may be an insect in the world stage but the one who's called Cyrus from the east the one who's behind all this chaos this fear, the one who's controlling and forecasting in the midst of the ignorance of the nations he is the one that's held your hand that's, that's the thought that we have here in Isaiah 41 and the phrase the Holy One of Israel um, captures God's I can't find another word in English God's special Godness it has that notion of the one who is unlike any other and yet he's of Israel, he's the one who has bowed himself by a pact to this people and uh, just when you think it's all gone sweet and pleasant the imagery does turn somewhat violent uh, in the next sentence what God says he'll do to his worm and his insect he'll make them into a threshing sledge 
a threshing sledge is a large bit of wood with spikes in it that you would drive up and down across your, your wheat to try and break it up so that you could get the grains free from the chaff. Today we've got combine harvesters but it wouldn't sound as good. <laughs> so it just goes one end of the big machine and out the other in the bag if you know anything about it. Oh, anyone here from the country ever seen harvesting or am I talking complete? Oh, I want to good, I can speak freely then of this matter without fear of contradiction. But this is, this is the imagery, it's the imagery of a, of, of, of a, of a, it's a very powerful image, a threshing hitched stretch, sharp, new, having teeth. So Israel is really getting out there. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winter them and the wind shall carry them away. The tempest shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. Well there you see a profound word of comfort to Israel. It's uh, the Cyrus crisis, the nation's panic, God holding hands with a word. It was also a threshing sledge. Try to put that in pictures. But a great promise to a little scared Israel that not to fear because God is, not because they've got it together, but because God has got it with them. Just pause a second before we move on to the next section. Um, and just ask if you can a Christian. I mean, what, I mean I told everybody, that's nice for Israel, good luck, you know, I'm very glad they, they have God holding their hand. It's all very well for them. What about us? Does God say, could God say to anyone to us, don't fear I'm with you, I am your God, to you? I will strengthen you, I will hold your right hand, you worm, you insect, don't fear, I will help you. Could God say that to me, truly? I don't just mean whistling in the dark, pretending, having your imaginary friend to get you through life, but really? Well, the answer actually is yes. Those who hope in the Lord, those who put their confidence in God, especially as he's now more fully revealed to us, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth the one who was crucified and raised from the dead who himself is included in our understanding of who God is those who put their confidence in him those well in him, whether you're an Israelite or not doesn't matter, in fact you can be, a, you can be any, any, any nationality, background well now it's not just for Israel it's for the nations um, you, 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 God can, God, you can take the words of Isaiah 41 and you can apply them to yourself why? Well, take a text like Romans 8.31, the very end of Romans 8, where the writer Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not give us everything else? And the text concludes with a great assurance that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the same message as Isaiah 41. It's true if you're in Christ. And you can come in Christ by seeking his mercy and forgiveness, just calling upon his name. It's not, it's not for the good. It's for those who are humble and trusting, in fact. And therefore, God does say to you, whatever you're worried about, and there can be terrible things that worry you, 
I don't mention until you start worrying for us to talk. So yeah, I was going to mention exams, illness, girlfriend, boyfriend, you know, everything from you know what I look like to what doing my future. And the young people's worries and old people's worries and middle-aged people's worries, all my worries. But God says to you, I am the God who made the universe, don't be afraid. I am the God who raised Jesus from the dead, do not fear. I am the God who justifies the ungodly, fear not. I am the God who is with you, I will strengthen you, do not be afraid. I am the God who loves you, you worm, you insect, fear not. And it, what it means is, whether Cyrus is uh, flying around, whether the world is going cut crazy, without knowing what God is doing, I don't know what God is doing, I can't read off, I don't have a prophetic gift. In Isaiah's day, the word was out. God was moving Cyrus to redeem his people. That God boasts that he can tell the future. No one else can know, but I don't know what is happening at the moment. Sometimes God may reveal his mind in a particular way. Uh, that one must be cautious about jumping too quickly those truths, but we normally live not knowing, do we? What we do know is that God is secretly working for his purposes. God is working for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. And, and that's, that's how you live life in the face of fear. It, it, it is an act of faith, it's an act of taking God at his word to say, no matter what, I'm in the center of your hand, you're holding my hand, though I may feel like a worm. In Christ, you've bound yourself to me. Though I cannot see and know whether I lose that game, that job, or lose it. Whether it lays it hold or not. Whether it is cured or not. It's not a guarantee you'll sail through life like Cyrus has described, your feet hardly touching the ground. But there it is. And then there will be a day, yet, yet to be, when he will come in glory to judge the living and the dead. There is a day when what is secret will be manifest to all. And the dead will be raised. And that day, what is at present by faith alone, will be by sight. Let me move on quickly to the other three sections. The overflowing water, see you in court, losers, and look, my servant. <laughs> Verse 17, the overflowing water. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Uh, we're, we're living in a world, I don't, know, I don't know whether there's a drought on or whether this is just normal, but we've got uh, some issues with uh, water in this country. And uh, you probably don't feel it much, I don't feel that much. But to be in a situation where you are genuinely suffering distressing lack of, lack of water is a very, it, it, it's a mentally distressing situation. I see it more on the television when I see people trying to eke out a living in some of those places when there is a serious problem with El Nino and all that. The distress and the thirst and, and death itself follows. And here's the image that God uses to re-promise to his people. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, you don't know, oh my goodness, no water. Their tongue is part with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them. Even then, and I will not forsake them. And how will that be? Well, here's a wonderful picture. I mentioned last week that the prophets speak not in simple propositions of precise theology or even precise history or 
signs. They, do, they, they say things that touch and all those things. But they do not speak that language. They speak the language of the imagination. They speak the language which speaks to the heart and to the, imagi- and, and to the mind in that sense. They, they evoke powerful images. And here is the most lovely image of God speaks of what it will be like. I will open the rivers, he says, on bare heights and the fountains in the midst of the valleys. I'll make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. And any botanists here are forests. Here's the most treed verse in the Bible, I think. 19. I'll put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain and the pine together. That all may see and know, that all may consider and understand, the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created. That is actually promising to do again what God had done. A lot of these promises in Isaiah have echoes of another great act of God that occurred when God first brought Israel to himself through a desert. And it's often like seem to be doing God will promise to do again what he did in what was called the Exodus. And certainly here. And one of the great stories there is when God grabbed Israel out of Egypt, they're in the deserts, thirsty, complaining to God. Um, why did you bring us out of Egypt? They said, to kill us and our children and wife off with thirst. Great group. And Moses strikes the rock and the water gushes forward. A miraculous supply. And um, that, that, that image is very powerful. Here God is doing it not just with a rock, but the heights and the ground. It's sort of an overwhelming picture of fertility and, and the bare heights being opened in the mountains. God will, will create all they need. All that they need. And you see elsewhere, for example, in chapter 43, similar kind of wilderness flourishing imagery, for example, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert wild animals will honour me and jackals and ostriches that's interesting but isn't it I'll give water in the wilderness rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people whom I form for myself that they might declare my praise so here is the promise of the new exodus now you see what I'm saying is it, to, to, to look at this and say well let's look and see if there's any sort of water reclamation works or irrigation in the Near East that's to miss the whole point it's not speaking in that language it's speaking in the language of of imagery of a great work it echoes even something further I can even see in these echoes not just of the Exodus perhaps right back to the very opening picture of the Bible of the paradise of God God's garden with a river flowing through it Eden and some sense in which there in fact we can say more these words have a fulfilment ahead of them just as the do not fear, so here. Um, 600 years later, a woman, thirsty, middle of the day, went to a well in uh, part of the Holy Land and she met a man there who asked her for some water. He was a Jew, she was Samaritan. And she was rather surprised about that. And the man said to her, quote, everyone who drinks of this water, he said, put into the well, will be thirsty again. But the one who drinks of the water that I will give you will never be thirsty. The water I give you will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. 
and that same man uh, down in the temple when it was long restored many again 600 years after Isaiah stands up and said this it was a great festival by the way in which water took a great part let anyone who is thirsty come to me and let the one who believes in me drink as the scriptures say out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water who was that man? he said that he is the, is the support he is the source of the water of life calling all to come to him to drink while he is the Lord Jesus Christ see what I've done? you get this prophecy you realise it has echoes in the, in, in the past in the exodus and, and, and back in, in, the, uh, in the very paradise of God the garden but as, I, as one looks at scripture one looks forward and sees that, that, that it's taken and it's taken hold of by, by Jesus as Paul will say and it's a good, a good rule of thumb about the Old Testament whenever you're not sure what it means go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 in him, that's Jesus all the promises of God is yes in him every one of God's promise is a yes it's an book. That's, that's 2 Corinthians 1.20 and that's what you see these promises of return and picked up and fulfilled uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ and so again you can take this text full of wonderfully reassuring of life and water and see it not just to Israel speaking of its immediate circumstance but echoing to us the last two sections see you in court losers a number of texts here you'll find are God frankly getting pretty bolshy um, I see the law reviews coming up again what, what's it, uh, big fat fee or something <laughs> is that title at least they're honest with it aren't they well God, uh, God is threatening the nations There's, to Israel he speaks these words of comfort but the, to, uh, to, to Cyrus he speaks words in a sense of well you don't know what you're doing but I know, I know I'm the one but to the nations uh, he takes them on you losers he says you haven't a clue what's going on let's have it out together look, just look at verse 21 for example set forth your case says the Lord bring forth your proofs says the king of Jacob let them bring them let them tell us what's going to happen tell us the former things what they are that we may consider them that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things that are come and off he goes taunting them you tell me what's happening come on then verse 21 you indeed are nothing you're a loser your work is nothing at all uh, this may be a reference not to the nations but to the other gods that's what verse 23 makes you wonder that, that if God is, is, is boasting at, 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 at the gods of the Babylonians and, and the various deities rather than at the people it's the gods he's going to look at verse 23 tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods do good or do harm that we may be afraid or terrified oh I'm so scared of you the kind of right come on do it but in fact it is me God says it is me the Lord verse 25 I stirred up one from the north and he has come from the rising of the sun he was summoned by name he shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay and you see there in which God boasts that no one declared it no one proclaimed it 
No one heard your words. I first declared it in Zion to give to Jerusalem good tidings. I told my prophet, in other words, what's going to happen? You haven't got a chance. It's, it's a strange... Now, you may think, what's that doing in the Bible? Why is God boasting? I'll talk more next week about it. But if you're neutralized, you're, you're, you're a member of God's people, and the world looks pretty grim, and things are changing, but you're not sure, and suddenly you realize that the God who has taken you by the hand is the one who can laugh and mock all those so-called gods and powers and forces that threaten you. You suddenly realize, do not fear. In a way, it's not for the sake of the gods, who, who, who are they anyway? It's for the sake of Israel that God speaks so boastfully, I think. It's kind of, they kind of encourage, they see him you know, slagging up at them, sledging them. If they're like, God the sledger. Uh, by the way, before you rush out this week and start insulting all unbelievers, come back next week. There's a very important qualification that you'll see a bit of. So don't go off half cocked on this one, please. Uh, but nonetheless, you see, verse 29, very clear what, what God thinks of them. You are a delusion. Nothing. In fact, if you went to verse chapter 45, just a reference here, you see, in fact, there's an astounding picture of God here, of the God who controls, who, who orders the affairs of the world. I'm just thinking, for example, of verse 7 of Isaiah 45, um, where God, God's, God's not just this nice, gentle, all things bright and beautiful God. The living God is much more than that. Uh, a God of, of good things and bad things. Verse 7, I form light, I create darkness. I make wheel, I create woe. And, uh, what's wheel and woe? The, that's the NRSV. The NIV puts it more clearly. I bring prosperity, I create disaster. I, the Lord, do these things. Now that's, uh, that's a big challenge to us, by the way. Is your God too small? It was a book I first read and it's always impressed me, even though I forget what was in it except for the title. Because <laughs> it really struck for me what I think is my constant problem. My God is too small. Israel's God was too small. But the living God is not too small. And I'm not going to defend him and justify him. I'm, I'm going to simply say he is the one who good and bad are in his hands. Yes, light and darkness. Not, not blind impersonal faith, the blind mechanism of the universe grinding on. No, the one who can say to Israel, you worm, I'll take you by the hand. I'm your redeemer. Not an immoral God but a God who is far more than we can imagine or think and whose ways are past searching out. We need to have, I think, as we deal with fear, a sense of the greatness and grandeur and mystery of God. Not, not to make him waffly and, uh, and vague. And some use the word mystery, but I mean awareness that the one who has spoken to us so clearly in Christ is so much greater than our puny brains can grasp. And therefore we face issues, uh, sometimes unimaginable difficulties, Sometimes just seeing them, we realise that, that I, the Lord, can do all, I do all these things. We think, how did he do them? Why did he do the world? All we have is Christ. And the words of the prophet Isaiah we have there. We need to leave things, in a sense, be humbly agnostic about some of what God is doing. At the same time, know he's utterly to be trusted. This God. And then we come to the end of this, beginning for next week, there's a very strange development. A very strange development. So far it's all been kind of chest beating, if I could use that phrase. 
There's been a tenderness in God calling Israel not to fear. There's been a wonderful promise of the waters flowing. There's been God, uh, there's been the kind of boastfulness, you loser gods, you hopeless jerk, you're nothing. You know, I'll take you on. I, 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 the Lord, do it all. And then you find, and chapter 42 doesn't, it's not a new chapter in the Bible, just that's our numbering system, so I want to go on. A very strange change, and next week I'm going to explore this in more depth. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And you think, well, that must be Israel, because God calls Israel his servant. You saw that just a little bit earlier, didn't we? And yet there's something about this picture that is more than just a reference to Israel. Up until now, Israel has been the servant whom God will rescue. Now, don't panic, don't fear. But here, God's servant will himself, themself, itself, I don't know what, do something. Listen to this. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him to bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. We're thinking here of a, uh, a bit of papyrus, a bit of a, bit of a thin, like a, uh, like a, like a thin uh, um, reed of uh, bamboo, something like that. And it's bruised, it's already, you know, it's already broken. But he won't even break that. It, it, it's, it's just hanging on by a thread. But this servant won't even break a bruised reed and a dimly burning wick, and when it's right down, he's not even going to be so gentle that even a little wick just burning, he's not going to put out. He will faithfully bring forth justice. The word justice here is, uh, in English, is a bit thin. Um, uh, whichever, whether you're a socialist or a capitalist, you know, it's either equal distribution or it's a you know, open system of, you know, it's not quite like that. It's the word mishpat in Hebrew has a much stronger sense of restoration and what is right. I, it's, I can't find it a, a simple English way to put it. it it's, it's justice, but it's justice extra. It, it, it's, it's the restoration of restoring things to proper order. That's, that's what's behind this. He'll bring that. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed. I mean, go, sounds a bit of wisdom. No, no, no. Strong, strong. He won't grow faint or be crushed till he's established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his teaching. In fact, I, I hate to admit this in public, but I owe this to Andrew Cato, so it shows we all sometimes have to depend on, on strange people. <laughs> but he drew my attention this great fact that in Isaiah you have the nations who are the coastlands, you know, and they're gods and God mocks. And yet, there's Silas, God's anointed, and God's, it's God's purpose. And here you have Israel. But there's also this figure, which is the servant. Now we're going to explore this next week because the servant who, in one of the people, it looks to me like he's talking about Israel's job. Israel's job was not just to be passively being saved. Israel has a task uh, to, to take something to the nations, to be a kind of beginning to the nations, just like Cyrus. And this kind of figure that you've got both the, the, the nations, and these two figures, one identified as sovereign, one unclear to us at this stage. One writer calls it a role in search of an actor, of a participant, and we'll explore next week uh, that language of the servant. What it does do, 
is it gives the notion that God is not just boasting of raw power but somehow in the mystery of God the God who's going to redeem Israel it's going to be done not just by Cyrus the great conqueror who smashes all his enemies but also there's this other figure coming out of, identified with and yet in some ways distinct from Israel who will restore them and even the weak one be put out or, or the re-bent um, come next week I'll tell you who it was who it is <laughs> but you might have a thought I've mentioned him already if you're not sure go to 1 Corinthians is it, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.20 and the name is there let's pray Father uh, we thank you for these wonderful words to the prophet Isaiah spoken at first to Israel in its despair but through the Lord Jesus Christ we've spoken to us and we pray that in our fears um, these words uh, will be words that you put in our hearts that we will be firm and strong as you bind yourself to us um, we pray Lord save us from the intimidation of the unbeliever or of the world out there that mocks and marginalises believers give us a strength and a comfort in that and we pray this in the name of the one who was primarily your servant the Lord Jesus Christ Amen. more next week the boastful and humble God <laughs>